Our sermon text this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 9, verses 30 through chapter 10, verse 4. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in, in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You know, there are some things in life that you can do it one way or another, and it really doesn't matter. Uh, but there are other things in life that it does matter. There is a right way, and there is a wrong way, and, and oftentimes the wrong way is quite dangerous, even deadly. <clears throat> when Carol and I were overseas, we um, lived in Austria, and we had to get a European license, which was no small task. Uh, they even train you on a certain amount of auto mechanics to get a license there. But w when you're getting your license there, they really do a good job of warning you regarding driving on the Autobahn. The Autobahn is their highway system, and as you probably know, it's, uh, it's a highway system that's uh, it's a very good highway system, and they drive very fast there. And so they warn you about how to drive on the Autobahn, but in particular, they warn you about, at least in German, it's translated like a ghost driver. A ghost driver is a, a person that gets twisted and turned around, and they're going the wrong way on the Autobahn. And when they're going the wrong way on the Autobahn at the speeds that you're traveling, to go the wrong way on that road is incredibly dangerous. And usually and often it's deadly because of the reaction time is minimized by the speed that cars are traveling. You don't want to go the wrong way on this Autobahn. Well, you know, our passage today really warns us about two ways as well. One is a wrong way to approach God. And there is a right way to approach God. There's a wrong way, and there's a right way. Now, when, when we look at this passage in Romans chapter 9, Paul's really trying to answer the question that people had, which is simply this. Why, if God had made all these promises to Israel, why were there so many, why the majority of Israel had rejected Jesus? I mean, why, if God had chosen them, would they have rejected him? Had God's word failed? Was God unfaithful? What could have happened? Well, of course, in Romans 9, Paul explains uh, that, no, God's word didn't fail. Uh, what he goes on to prove is that not all Israel belongs to Israel. In other words, the promise of God given uh, for salvation wasn't given to every ethnic descendant of Abraham, but rather his promise was given uh, to the children of promise, those whom God had chosen before the foundations of the world. And, and listen, Paul immediately defends his argument because he knows it's starting to raise up in your minds. He says, look at your old Old Testament. 
You know, he chose Isaac, not Ishmael. He chose Jacob, not Esau. They, they all were descendants of Abraham, but not all were chosen by God. Now, immediately the unfairness and the question of injustice begins to creep up in your mind. And so Paul answers that. He says, listen, God will have mercy on whom he has mercy. He is the potter, we're the clay. He's the creator. He can make us out of the same lump of clay, a vessel of common use or a vessel of honorable use. Now, if, if Paul just stopped in Romans 9, 29, we might think, well, okay, that solves the issue. I guess what it is is the majority of Israel didn't follow God because God didn't choose them. That's the end of the story. But Paul continues the argument. That's why in our verse 30, he says, what shall we say then? Paul's continuing the argument. He's showing now, if, if chapter 9 was about the, about the divine sovereignty of God and election, uh, chapter 9.30 all the way through 10.21 will be about the human side of things. It'll be about what is our response. In other words, the majority of Israel that rejected Christ, they went the wrong way. They chose to pursue God through a path of earned righteousness rather than a righteousness by faith. This is the human side of why people reject Christ. They choose their own path to approach God. There are two ways. There's a wrong way and there's a right way. And it really does answer the question, why do people reject Christ? So if you look with me, we'll look at both sides, the wrong way and the right way. You'll see the tension in verse 30. Look in 30, he says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. So let's look at the wrong way for just a minute. Uh, you know, the, the question is, why did the majority of Israel reject Jesus Christ, the one to whom, the one that had come from the Father. And it's because simply this, that they chose the wrong way. They chose to pursue being made right with God through their law-keeping. In other words, the word righteousness, you could really translate it right standing with God. Uh, the, the Jews thought that it, their right standing with God will come through their godliness. Uh, their acceptance with God will come through their ability to keep the law and their efforts at it. Now listen, the Jewish nation was scrupulous about the laws of God. I mean, I mean the law of tithing, for example, giving 10%. They didn't just give 10% of their goods, they gave 10% of their herbs. That's you going in the garden and, and, and harvesting your oregano and weighing it out and giving 10% of it to God. They were fastidious about it. Or, or keeping the Sabbath. You know, the Sabbath was a time of worship. It was a time of developing affections for God. You were not supposed to work. And they wouldn't work, but they'd even go beyond that. You know, they would not even spit in the dirt because their fear is if they accidentally kicked more dirt into the spittle, that would be equivalent to making bricks, which was work. Now, we think that sounds goofy, but the efforts that they were striving to earn the favor of this holy and righteous God, that's what it drives you to. Or, or, or drinking wine. You know, wine is a sweet drink. It draws gnats at night. And to drink the, the law says do not consume an insect that crawls. And so they would drink the wine through gritted teeth to strain out gnats. 
But that's, they're trying to earn favor with God. They're trying to earn acceptance with God. They're trying to prove to God that we really do love you. Look at my life. Look at all that I'm doing for you. You know, they were pursuing a righteousness by their works. But not just that, on the negative side of things, they rejected a righteousness by faith. You see that in chapter 10, verse 1. You see Paul kind of being sad. He says, my heart's in desire that they may be saved. They have this zeal, but it has no knowledge. Notice what it says. They don't, they're ignorant of God's righteousness. They're ignorant of the righteousness of God. Now, they weren't ignorant that God was holy. They knew that. They were ignorant. They thought that the way to approach God was through all of their efforts. They didn't understand that the way of righteousness to God is through faith. You see the same thing in verse 3 when he says that they did not submit to God's righteousness. They didn't humble themselves and receive as a gift the grace of God that was in this Christ. They rejected the way of righteousness by faith. That's what he means in verse 4, and he says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. In other words, Christ has come to put an end to the law, not to finish it as it doesn't have any value anymore, but, but he has fulfilled the demands of the law. He has satisfied the demands of the law. And that those who have faith now in Christ are made right with God. But they rejected that pursuing a righteousness by works, by works. And that's why Paul says that they stumbled on the stumbling stone you see there in verse, in verse 33. They, they stumbled on this rock of offense, the stone of stumbling. Who is that? Well, it's Jesus Christ. It's a prophecy uh, back in Isaiah 28 and chapter 8 as well. He kind of conflates two verses together. Th this is the Christ the one promised upon whom God would build his kingdom. And they stumbled over him. They stumbled over him because they didn't see him as coming from God to reconcile people to God. Maybe some saw him as a prophet, maybe some saw him as a teacher or a miracle worker. They did not see him as the means through which we go to find righteousness with God. Now listen, there's a lot of reasons they stumbled over him. They stumbled over him because they didn't understand the law. You know, remember now, the Old Testament law was given by God, probably referring to the Mosaic law, the Ten Commands. They probably, uh, they, the law was given as a tutor to lead us to see not just the holiness of God, but our own sinfulness. The law was given to us to instruct us of our own inability to somehow think that we can make our way to God. The law was like a mirror. It was like a mirror where you, you, know, you look in the mirror and you see what's out of place on your body. The law was given to us so that we could see we cannot work our way into such a good spot that God will say, this is my beloved son and in him I'm well pleased. The, the, the law was a mirror. Now listen, they didn't, they didn't see that. They just doubled down on their efforts. They just tried harder. For them, the law was like a ladder, a ladder, a, a, a ladder that you would climb up. I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and finally at the end of my life, God will accept me for all the efforts that I expended for his name. They didn't see that the law was really meant to drive us to God for mercy, not for justice. I don't want justice for my life. I need mercy because look how I failed. 
If you see how often you fail as you hold yourself against the law, you don't want justice. You're like the prisoner that knows he's guilty. Just give me mercy. That's all I can ask for. They didn't see that the law was meant to drive them to that. To drive them to a Savior, a Messiah, who would come from God and reconcile us to himself. That's what the law was meant to do. And they missed that. Now Paul's already said that to us in chapter 3 in Romans. He says this, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Is that not clear to us? He says, since the law comes, the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law is given to us to show us our sin. And then Paul goes on and says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. It's been manifest to us now in Christ. He says, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the law and the prophets speak to one to come, a servant of God, a Messiah, who would live without stain, without sin, and who would reconcile us to God. They miss that. They stumbled over Christ because they thought the law was a ladder, not a mirror. But they also stumbled over Christ because, um, because it's offensive, frankly. The gospel of grace is offensive. I, I mean, it is. To a religious people, like just take ourselves, for example, it's offensive to hear that you cannot do it. You know, to, to move someone forward, the easiest way is to say no, or you can't do it. Immediately you want to do it. You want whatever people are saying you can't have. To a religious person who sees change in his life, in morality, to be told that your sins are so great you need a Savior is very difficult. To, to hear that the prostitute needs the same grace that Tom Mercer needs is offensive. It's offensive to our pride and our arrogance. To the moralist, to hear this idea that it's only through Christ alone and not through what we do is troubling. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews. Hey, think about the Jews for a minute. There they are in Israel. They're surrounded by just nations of heathenism and paganism, and they're a moral people. They are a theistic people, one God. And, and you're telling them that they need the grace that these Gentiles need? No way. No way. I'm not near as bad as that group, whatever that group is. It's offensive to hear. But they also stumbled over this, this idea of righteousness by faith just because it seems too easy, doesn't it? I mean, come on. Believe in Jesus and my sins are washed away. I'm declared righteous. I'm reconciled to God. I have an eternal home. Really? I, I, I mean, aren't we even taught when we were kids? Don't, don't just go and take. I mean, it's polite to give. You've got to produce something. You shouldn't just take something. But underneath that idea is I want to contribute something so I've got my own flesh in the deal. I, I, I want some part of it as well. Uh, so, so when you look at the wrong way of approaching God, it, it's driven by I'm going to seek God's favor, God's acceptance, by virtue of my performance and the efforts that I make. Now, it, maybe you don't want to, maybe you're here and you think that's the way I've lived my life. Maybe you don't hold to an Old Testament law. Maybe you just hold to some other law, like the guy on the street. You know what, just want to live by the golden rule. You know, treat others the way you want to be treated. That's the way he lives, and, and that's the way he's going to approach God. Yeah, I've kept my golden rule, so I should be fine with God. Well, well, here's the warning for us today, those of you right now that are listening. 
the warning is there is a danger in being good. There is a danger in you or I thinking that, you know what, I go to church and I, I, I give of my wealth, I give of my time, I, I study the Bible, look at the reformation that's taken place in my life, I, I lived a dark life and now I'm not doing all those sins that I've done. And, and there's a sort of confidence that builds up. If there's a confidence in you and your standing that is based upon what you have been able to perform, be warned, be warned. Because if that's in us, that brings us very close to the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. You know the parable that I've spoken about over the past couple of weeks? There's a father, he's got two sons. The younger son says to dad, hey, can I have my inheritance now? Basically saying, I wish you were knocked off so I could have my money now. He gets his money, he goes, he burns it all in wine, women, and song. And the older brother there, he's a fixture, he's faithful, he's diligent, he's doing everything the dad wanted. Well, at one point, the younger son comes to his senses, he returns home, the dad forgives him, throws a party for him, and they all start to celebrate because this son that was once dead is now alive. The older brother's outside the party. He doesn't want to go in. Why? He's angry. He's angry at his dad. He says to him, listen, you've never, you've never sacrificed a lamb for me. I've never left you. I never embarrassed you with the neighbors. A and yet you've done none of these things for me. But, but here's the point. Remember now, Jesus told the parable to the Pharisees. So the star of the story is really the older brother. It is the grace that the father gives to the son that reveals the relationship of the older brother to the father, which was based on works. Look at what I've done for you. Look at how dutiful I've been to you. In other words, the older brother is holding the father in contempt. He's approached the father, not based upon the father's love for him, but on all that he's done for the father. He's looked at his own life. Look at all I've done for you, and you've never done these things for me. He's holding God in contempt. That's the warning for us. Jesus said, I've not come for the righteous. I've come for the sinner to call him to repentance. I mean, that's, huge. that's a great warning for us. Richard Lovelace was a professor of mine in seminary, and he wrote these words in a book called Spiritual Dynamics. He says, we all automatically gravitate to, uh, toward the assumption that we are justified by our level of sanctification. We start each day with our personal security, resting not on the accepting love of God and the sacrifice of Christ, but on our present feelings or recent achievements in religion. Since these arguments will not quiet the human conscience, we know that we're really not doing that well, we are inevitably moved to a self-righteousness which falsifies the record to achieve a sense of peace. In other words, I begin to look at my life, and if I'm trying to find security with God based upon what I've done, well, I realize that I start failing all over the place, so I have to begin justifying. I have to begin falsifying the record so that I can have a good enough record to bring some short-term peace with God, as opposed to looking to the righteousness that comes by Christ. So be warned about being good. Many of us need to repent of our religion. Many of us need to repent of the faith and the confidence that we've drawn by the change in our own lives. I want you to look for fruit in your life of faith but I don't want you to rest in that fruit. And then I would say this too. The other warning is a zealousness without knowledge is almost useless. You know, you see this zealousness without knowledge. You know, we often think that if we're sincere in our approach to God, that's all that matters. In fact, perhaps you've even said to someone, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you hold it sincerely. 
Well, that is absolutely false. I mean, it's like saying, well, I really believe this medicine's going to help me. My sincerity regarding the medicine doesn't change the dynamic of the medicine. It's the object. We all have friends and family that are sincere in our beliefs, but they may be wrong. So be warned that a zealousness, a fervor, an excitement for religion doesn't necessarily make it right. And then, and then the last warning I would give you regarding this wrong way is that to be warned that actually all religions operate on this principle of a works righteousness. All of them. Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism. All these religions have something in common, which is that they look to their own actions as being singularly determinative regarding their future destiny. Again, the laws may be different. The law may just simply, I live by the golden rule. But all religions of man operate on the principle of thinking that future destiny is tied to current actions. But Christianity is a religion of grace. That God gives grace sovereignly because he is merciful to those whom he is merciful. You know, when I ask people, I, I love to get in conversations trying to figure out where people are at in terms of the faith. And so I'll often say to a person, well, well, how do you feel about your relationship with God? You know, if you were to die and appear before God, would it be a good meeting or would it be a bad meeting? You know, how are you doing with God kind of thing? And, and I'm always surprised. A few people come up and say, you know what? It's not good. It's not good at all. And I, I love their honesty. But most people tend to say, yeah, it's going pretty good. I think it'll be all right. You, you know, like on a, I say so on a regular grading scale, A through F, if everybody comes around the B-ish, kind of, you know, they don't want to go C because we don't want to be average, and we don't have the courage to go A because we don't really, know, we know that we're really not that good. So we kind of go B-ish. Yes, it's good, above average, you know, not bad. And I'll say, so, so what do you base that grade on? Like, what, what would you say is giving you the confidence that, that if you bring your report card to God, it's going to be a B? And they usually start with what they haven't done. I haven't killed anybody, I haven't raped anybody, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't covered up my neighbors. It's usually based on what they have not done. Sometimes it moves to, well, I go to church, and I've been a Christian all my life, and blah, 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 kind of thing. But, but what are they trusting in at that point? They're resting in their own works. They're resting in a works righteousness, that they are going to be made right with God through the works that they have done or have not done. And that is the wrong way. It is like going down the Autobahn the wrong way. It's a deadly way. So, so if any of us right now are clinging to this idea that given the, the pattern of your life and the things that you've done and the sacrifices that you, you're, you're, the fact that you've been a sacrificial mother or a faithful husband or a dutiful child, that if that is where you're resting your hope for God to say, well done, you did a great job. It is the wrong way, according to this text. But we see Another way, we see the right way. Look back with me at verse 30. Because he says, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. In other words, these Gentiles attained a righteousness by faith. How? How did they come into this righteousness by faith? Well, I think one one answer would simply be that they knew their lives were dumpster fires. They were trash. I mean, when you look at, when you look at Gentile land at the time, I, I mean, there was sexual deviancy, there was corruption, there was lying, there was bitterness, there was anger. 
There was nothing pleasant about a Gentile community. Uh, they had sought pleasures for themselves. And, you know, when you seek pleasures for yourself, year after year, it begins to be stale. The sex that once gave you the excitement, it gets stale. Getting drunk gets stale. You begin to see the superficiality. And you begin to see just the, just the wasted life pursuing pleasures. They were at a place of recognizing that their lives were trash. They were sinners. They were broken. They didn't do anything to warrant God's favor. Here these Gentiles are beginning to hear this message of Jesus Christ, a Savior from God, sent to save sinners. And they began to see the awful sin, the weight of their sin. And they saw Christ as a Savior. They saw him as a deliverer, one to come and deliver them. They recognized their poverty, and so they ran to the one who had ultimate wealth. They were like the younger brother of the parable of the prodigal son. They took their dad's money. They took their dad's gifts, and they burned it all selfishly. But it was only when they were living with the pigs that their eyes began to become clear and wake up to their senses and return to their father. It's like the prostitute. You know, if you go back later today, I would encourage you, actually, read Luke 7. Luke 7, and there's a story where Jesus is uh, with a Pharisee, Simon. And Simon's checking him out. Jesus has been doing ministry, and Simon's like a guard at the gate, kind of checking things out, kind of a, a, a little bit condescending. He's a, re- you know, he's a recognized Pharisee. Jesus is some young upstart. And they're having this discussion, and then a woman, a prostitute. Now, let's, let's be straight up about it. She was a prostitute. I mean, she, she made her living with her body. Now, it's glamorized on television, but can you imagine the filth, the degradation? She would hate herself. She would self-loathing, dirty. And she comes to Jesus. Do you think she's got anything to be proud of? She just weeps on his feet. She just cries. She probably had heard the message of the gospel earlier that day or earlier that week. She would have heard that he's a forgiving Savior. He's come. The gospel, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. And you know what she heard? She saw her life, saw this message of freedom in Christ, repentance and faith, forgiveness of sins, and she just began to cry. Cry, and then she, she dragged her hair across his feet to dry it off. And he says to her, he says, your faith has saved you, your faith. A righteousness by faith saved her, not Simon. That's what it is. The right way is recognizing the nature of our sin and coming by faith, belief, trust. Isaac the Syrian was a theologian of the 7th century, lived in Iraq, and here's what he wrote. And, And the reason I just, quick digress, this was written 1,300 years ago, and it's relevant right now, right here. God will always have his truth sustained throughout every generation. He says this, he says, He who senses his sin is greater than he who raises the dead with his prayer. He who groans one hour for his soul is greater than he who benefits the whole world. To be aware of your sin so that your eyes are open to the mercy of God is profound. See, these Gentiles, they did not stumble over the stone. They didn't stumble over Jesus as a stone. They ran to him as a cornerstone. 
they built their life. He's not a stumbling stone to those of faith. He's a cornerstone. You know, when Paul puts these verses together in verse 33, he draws Isaiah 28 and Isaiah 8. Let me read to you the full passage. He says this, <clears throat> Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes in him will not be in haste or in worry or in shame. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and they shall be broken. The prophecy in Isaiah that Paul is referencing, Christ is that stone. He's a stone of stumbling to those who fail to put their faith in him. And he will crush you. He'll crush you. And if you want to know how he crushes you, read Psalm 2. But he's a sanctuary to those who come to him. A place of refuge. A place of hope for those who put their faith in him. We come to Jesus as a precious cornerstone by faith. You see it in the text. Look in 30. He says they attained it, a righteousness by faith. You see it in 32. They didn't pursue it by works, but by faith. You see it in 33. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. You see it in verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That Christ is the end of the law. We don't need to keep the law anymore. There's a place for the Christian in the law, and that's a huge discussion, the relationship between the gospel and the law. But the law as a means of appealing to God has been satisfied in Christ. That's why our hope in Christ brings us into a right relationship with God. There's a right way, and it is the way by faith in Christ. Now, Paul made, all of us, by the way, have to make this transition. Every one of us here is born a law keeper. Everyone is born here with an intuit with an intuition that if I do enough, God's going to accept me. Everyone has to make the transition away from works away to faith. Now, Paul made this transition. So if you were to read in Philippians chapter 3, he says this. He says, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. He says, if, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, I'm of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Do you have faith? This is what the whole book's been about, right? I mean, in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for all who what? All who believe. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Then it goes on in 17, and he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. It's written, the righteous shall live by faith. The whole book's been about that. Paul is writing to this Roman church, and he's saying, Listen, listen, we have to live by faith. And then that right in chapter 1, verse 19, all the way through chapter 3, we see that all are condemned, the Jew and the Gentile. They all fall short of God's glory. 
and they all need the propitiation of Christ in chapter 3 that comes by faith. And then in chapter 4, he talks about Abraham, who's a picture of faith from the Old Testament. And then in chapters 5 through 8, it's how we live that life of faith. And then chapters 9 to 11, he's dealing with the Jewish question. Why didn't they live by faith? Well, they pursued a way of works righteousness. So, so what do we take away as a modern audience here? Well, well, first, I mean, coming to Jesus the right way, coming to Jesus as a cornerstone, is recognizing, it begins with recognizing our sin, recognizing our need for him, and no longer trusting and resting in our own works, but recognizing the absolute depravity of human nature of which is in every one of us. We need salvation from outside of ourselves. So New Age theology says, no, you've got to dig within. Everybody has a spark of divinity within. No, 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 don't go in, go out. You're going out to Christ, not in. That's why you know, people that stumbled over Jesus in his ministry were the religious. They were the righteous. They were the Pharisees. C.S. Lewis, I, I quote this all the time just because I think it's always relevant to a religious audience. He says, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous, they're in that danger. So we have to understand our need for sin. That's why Jesus begins his whole Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You want the kingdom of heaven? It begins by poverty of spirit. Poverty of spirit isn't, isn't kind of a, a financial issue. Poverty of spirit is having no spiritual power within yourself. It's, it's God, and it's God alone through his mercy in Christ. So, first, that, that coming to faith, coming to Christ as a cornerstone, coming rightly is, begins by recognizing our sin, but it also begins by accepting the fact that God's salvation is by sovereign election. Uh, listen, there's ironies all over this passage. Uh, the Gentiles who didn't seek it, attain it. The Jews who sought it, didn't attain it. The ones who had the least ended up with the most. The ones who were most guilty were found innocent. The ones who were most godly were found guilty. I mean, go figure it out. You know, God's way of doing things will blow your mind. It will blow your mind. He does things in a way that nobody will say, I kind of figured that out. You know, in, in Corinthians, Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews. Folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God is going to upend our paradigms. He's going to do it his way. And we're going to stand back and we're going to say, you are glorious, because you've done everything in a way different than I would have ever understood. So coming to Christ isn't just recognizing your sin, it's recognizing the glory of God in his unique way, but also... Uh, coming to Jesus uh, as the cornerstone is to see the church differently. 
Listen, the church is to be a place of prostitutes and tax collectors. That's what we are. You know, the religious people are usually the least honest about who they are. They can't afford. If, if my relationship with God is strictly tethered to how I live, I'm not going to tell you where I'm struggling. I mean, that's going to undermine my own hope for salvation. But if we really know that we're prostitutes, if we really know that we're tax collectors, if we really know this is who we are, there's a transparency that will be among us that will lead to healthy, strong, vibrant relationships. But it comes when we're no longer posturing about how holy or spiritual or how advanced we are. It's recognizing that we are all the same in need of a great Savior, that none brought more to the table than someone else. We all need that grace. And then last, I would say, coming to Jesus as the cornerstone, coming the right way, is to embrace the mystery of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. As I said at the beginning of the sermon, chapter 9 is all about God's sovereignty. That's all you hear. God, God, God. God did this. God did this. God chose this. God chose that. But then in chapter 9, 30, all the way through 10, 21, it's all about man's responsibility. They go together. They both exist. You can't separate them. Five times in chapter 10, Paul is going to condemn the Jews for their rejection of Jesus. He calls them a stiff and an obstinate people. They go together. I don't mean to separate them. We need them together. Which means, which means this, that if we embrace that mystery, then we can have sorrow over those who don't believe. We can have sorrow over those who reject. Look at Paul in chapter 9 at the beginning. He says, I wish myself accursed. In chapter 10, he says, my prayer is that they be saved. Paul is sad. You can't say, listen, hey, if God doesn't choose them, <laughs> sorry, it's the way it is. If, he didn't, if God doesn't choose them, that's just tough, tough luck for them. No, we're to feel sorrowful. You know, th th that tension of human responsibility and divine sovereignty causes us, we're sad over them. Not only are we sorrowful over those who don't believe, but we pray for them. Paul says it right there in 10.1. My prayer is that they may be saved. People say, well, why should I pray if God's sovereign? Well, because he tells us to. That's one. And because humans have responsibility. And our responsibility is to preach the gospel. That's the means by which they will be saved. Both prayer and preaching, that's God being gracious to draw us in to his eternal plan of saving people to himself. And so we always want to pray for their salvation. That's why we're doing this prayer and fasting. You, you see the, the, uh, the card in your, in your bulletin? So all year, we're going to be praying and fasting as a church on the second Tuesday, beginning on Monday night after dinner through Tuesday, and then breaking the fast on Tuesday in the evening. We believe that fasting, it's been a long tradition for the Christian Fasting is a way of reminding ourselves of our own spiritual weakness. It's a reminder that we can't even exist a day without food. But it also reminds us that the hunger that we have, we want it satisfied from God. The food that we satisfy our hunger with has to be repeated the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day. But God can satisfy us as no other. And we're fasting because, God, we need you. We need you to satisfy us. We need you to move. So we're fasting for that we would love God's word. You know, the first four months of this year, we're going to be looking at loving God's glory. That's part of our church vision. The next four months, 
loving God's people, and the last four months, loving God's world, those will be the focuses of our fast. So let me encourage you, this Monday night you have dinner, but then spend time in prayer on Monday evening, praying that you would love God's word, that God's word would be a light. It'd be a light to your path. It'd be a mirror to your sin. That you would love God's word, you would want to speak God's word. You want to see God's word take place in your marriage, in your parenting, in the way you work. You know, you want to, on Tuesday morning, instead of eating breakfast, or for those, modify the fast, as we spoke about, if you need to. Uh, but for those that, that don't, then Tuesday morning, instead of eating breakfast, we're going to appeal to God. God, I need your word. I need your word. J- just a- as a deer pants for water, I- I'm panting for your word to know it. And then, and then you break, and then lunch, do the same, and then break the fast on Tuesday night. For people to understand there is a wrong way and there is a right way, we need God to open the eyes of the blind. And so th- there's a wrong way, a wrong way that we think somehow we're going to be able to muster up enough spiritual goodness that God will be impressed. Let me, that is driving the wrong way on the Autobahn, I promise you. And, and the way of righteousness is the way of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ, who has come to shed his own blood for our sins to reconcile us to God. Now, read ahead with me, because in the rest of chapter 10, next week we're going to see what faith looks like. We're going to see what does it mean to have faith. And then, and then after that, at the end of chapter 10, we're going to be looking at, okay, now how do we preach this faith to others? And how God uses our preaching, our lives, our words, about bringing more into the kingdom. So it's a very exciting chapter. Let's just take a minute now and ask God for grace. Uh, Let's ask him for clarity, not just that we understand the passage, but that our hearts are beginning to swell with affections for the kindness of this merciful God. We don't want justice from him. We only want mercy from him. Jesus has taken the justice of God for us. And then I'll pray for us in just a minute.